Or in other words, you've made a rod for your own back. How <laughs> was it my fault? Come on. In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition. Which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that... Welcome to Two Shrinks Pod. I'm Amy Donaldson and I'm joined by Hunter Mulcair. Hi. Hello. So today we're going to be talking about treatment for borderline personality disorder. Last time we talked about borderline personality disorder, we talked about the symptoms, some of the relational patterns, what happens in treatment in terms of the dynamics between therapist and client. But today we'll be really focusing on the treatments that are out there, particularly on DBT. So Hunter's going to take us through some of that and I'll jump in every now and then and argue. <laughs> That's it. You won't be able to contain yourself. I will not. I'll give myself two minutes. Yeah. So, so DBT is uh, dialectical behavior therapy yeah. and it's a very interesting therapy modality. So we're going to try and have a fairly in-depth, into the weeds conversation mm-hmm. about it. So hopefully it won't lose too many of you, but I think if you are a fan of psych stuff and if you are trying to understand this condition and what what can be done about it and why it's difficult to treat and all these kinds of things, then hopefully this will be a really interesting hour or so. Mm. It might go a bit longer than that, I think, but we'll, we'll see how, see we, how go. we go. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it's quite different from a lot of other therapies and not something that the majority of therapists would actually do they might use bits and pieces from it but it's not as it's not sort of our general bread and butter for a lot of people like no. it's not like cbt or something that that most psychologists if not all will be trained in so i think it's quite interesting in that respect that it's it's an entire framework it's got multiple parts to it it's, it's very complicated quite complicated and it has a different sort of way of interacting with your client than other therapies as well. Yeah. I mean, and just to give you an understanding of like when we say, oh, it's a different different approach. Like so in prep, in prep preparing for this pod, I went and got like I've got the copy of the original DBT book, mm. which I think is a 1993 mm. book. And then I was – and I thought, well, look, I'm not going to read a whole book. It's like a text. It's going to just take too long. So I thought, oh, I'll look up a chapter in one of my cognitive therapy books – and the chapter description was 62 pages. Yeah. And that's that was like a brief overview. Yeah, it wouldn't have gone into much detail yeah, about it. And it doesn't anything. go into much detail. No. And so it's really, really interesting from that perspective. And it's a really it's really kind of comprehensive, which is what I like. Like I think it, it like it's sort of really quite pleasing to read in yeah. that kind of way. So So before we get started, we'd like to ask if you enjoy this, that you uh, follow us on Twitter, that you Rate us as many stars as possible on Five stars iTunes. or more, I reckon. Five stars or more. Yeah, that, that works. Leave us comments, send us emails. Everything's Two Shrinks Pod. So Twitter is two at shrinks pod. Two Shrinks Pod. Um, our email address is Two Shrinks Pod at gmail.com, website Two Shrinks Pod. Com. Uh, you can find all of our old episodes there and in uh, the descriptions on each one you'll find links to all of the studies that we talk about as well if you want to you know, do your own reading. Yeah. So, shall I get started? Yeah. Okay. So, in, in the last pod, one of the things that neither you or I could remember or had any good stats on was the risk element of borderline personality disorder. Mm-hmm. So, 
And I'm actually going to give people, I'm going to give a little bit of a description of BPD in, in about five minutes time. So if you, if you haven't listened to that last pod, just hang in just there. Hang in there. Um, but so 75% of people who meet criteria for borderline personality have a history of suicide attempts mm-hmm. with an average of 3.4 attempts per individual. Suicide threats and crises are frequent amongst yeah. borderline personality uh, individuals, even amongst those who've never engaged in self-harm. Mm. So, you can, so self-harm is other, another key feature of borderline personality. Frequently, you think about that as cutting or burning, mm. but there's all sorts mm. of other stuff. Poisoning is really common as well. Yeah, that kind of stuff. So follow-up studies show suicide rates of between 7 and 8% and estimated probably about 10% eventually do commit suicide. Mm. So that's a really high rate. Absolutely. If you're just looking at suicide as an end point. Mm. So that kind of gets a part of the reason why it's, it's really important to treat borderline personality and is why clinicians sort of are very wary of working with this population yeah. because because the, the risk is actually very real yeah absolutely and it's i think there's a lot of fear about that especially for clinicians working on their own or things like that about mm. how to manage that risk mm. and and deal with that over a long period of time yeah um, it's sort of chronic risk rather than building to a crisis yeah. or yeah. So, it's different from other populations. And what's interesting in, in the writing about DBT is that they, they kind of class people with borderline personality into different stages. Mm. Like, and so like from stage one to four yeah. and stage one is kind of like, which is probably what we'll spend most time talking about today is, is about treating all those kind of self-injurious suicidal kind of behaviours. Yeah, the baseline sort of safety yeah. parts. Yeah. yeah, and then sort of the later stages of treatment would be kind of w- working through and resolving as best one can the problems from childhood yeah. and a few of the other things. And so that, that population would be, you would assume, less likely to, to hurt or kill themselves. Mm. So you would be wanting to see... If, you, if you've got a loved one or for yourself, like you'd be wanting to see psych- uh, someone working in DBT in a, as part of a team if you're in sort of like the early stage where Definitely. there's still a lot of behaviour going on. But if you're, if that, some of that stuff's gone down, maybe seeing a, a, you know, a therapist by themselves would probably, you'd probably suffice. Mm. I mean, depending. But yeah, that kind depending of on sense. their background and yeah, their, that kind of stuff. So the way they work. One of the key features is also like this intense anger that can be directed at therapists, like as well as comorbid other problems, like in B- BPD. So treatment really is just difficult. It's just a difficult problem to treat. I'm just sound like a repetitive thing. And there's nine criteria, and you have to have five of them. We talked about them at length last time, and that but that yields 256 ways of achieving a borderline personality diagnosis. Yeah, it's not like you end up with straightforward, similar presentations across different people. Yeah. So really, so DBT grew out of cognitive behavioural therapy for a population that were self-harming, were chronically suicidal and that for really, and like they say this in the book, like CBT just fails them. It wasn't working. Yeah, it it doesn't address the key issues. Yeah, and so Marsha Linehan has created Mm. DBT and so she, she found that, she would found that in attempting to treat these patients that she would that CBT was invalidating, cognitive behavioural therapy was invalidating, particularly the, the focus, continual focus on change. Yeah. Right? It's like, in, and so it's this invalidating a, 
like approach. Like if you're, and so what I mean by that is like if you're saying okay well in this moment you're having amy you're having this anxious thought about doing this presentation is that thought really correct Hmm. that's actually invalidating your thought yeah it's it's not allowing time to sit with that or go i can see that you're really anxious it's like okay let's move on to the next yeah and i mean let's shift it yeah and and like there's a there's a balance there as a therapist Mm. and and you get better at that but but, but even still, if you're doing it well, it's still kind of invalidating. Hmm. So, and she also, she also noticed that clients would reward her for going off track mm-hmm. and punish her for not going off track and focusing on like the longer term needs at the expense of short term goals or short term needs. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so this kind of led to uh, like a development of, of this new theory. So, or, or approach. So there's, so three main components of DBT. So listeners, I want you to imagine a triangle, right? And with like the point pointing down across the top. So the, across the top, you would have like what's called the dialectical philosophy. And on the two sides, you'd have Zen practice and behavioral science, right? Mm-hmm. So that doesn't make any sense to anyone who's not seen the DBT <laughs> triangle before. But so dialectical philosophy is like when you hold two things in opposition. So you have to hold both of these things in your head simultaneously so the the example i think of is a client is incompetent the client is skillful yeah yeah or the client has skills to change the client also needs to learn skills to change Mm -hmm. so like this kind of so you can hold hold both parts yeah yeah and they're kind of opposing and you kind of like and you oscillate between the two and the idea is to sort of move to us toward a sort of a synthesis of opposing Ideas and so di- sort of middle ground that yeah. Yeah, sort of brings like, it both together. Yeah, so and you can imagine this. So that's kind of a complicated way to think about things. And so to sort of balance that, you have Zen practice, so which is the science of being and accepting. So this like mindfulness practice is a, is actually a big key here. So this folk, which and so this this side of the triangle is like focusing on acceptance rather than change. Mm. Versus the other side of the triangle, which is behavioral science, which is the science of change. And when you read it, it's pretty hardcore approaches to behavior and reward. Mm-hmm. So, like, so the classic one that comes to my mind is when you're trying to help people stop self-harming, the approach, and you can do telephone consultations mm. where the client can call the therapist. The approach is call me before you self-harm. But if you call me after yourself harm, I'm not. I'm going to hang up the phone mm. because I'm rewarding. I'm giving you a reward for self harming for that behaviour, which is so different from just about any other approach. Yeah. To that, like I, I think for a lot of therapists, a call like that would then launch you into assessing what state the person's in, making sure that they had enough crisis support, things like that, and. This approach is so different in that element. Like yeah. it's it's firm and hardcore. I think that's why often it's like if it's going to be done well, it needs to be done in a team because then the professional needs support to be able to do those yeah. things. And, and you to have be to trust to, the therapy. Yeah, you have to trust that that's going to work and that that's not going to escalate things. Yeah, yeah. So I, I like reading about DBT because I, I really enjoy like a, a proper behavioral analysis of like like reward and that kind of stuff, like action and reward and what do people get out of it? Because mm-hmm. I, I find that really interesting. It really tickles that psych brain in me. Yeah. 
So Marsha Linehan reorganized the diagnostic criteria of borderline personality into five domains. So when we talked about it last time, you know, you would actually, if you go back and listen to it, there's no sort of explanatory model as to why these things are going on. No. Right. I mean, we talked about it, uh, like a, a paper on it, but but in the criteria, in the criteria, right? So it's a theoretical. Yeah, a theoretical. So debut. so she suggested essentially that there are five domains of dysregulation, right? So emotional dysregulation is number one. So like reactive emotional responses, you know, anxiety, depression, anger, irritability. Number two would be behavioural dysregulation. So this is like impulsive behaviour, destructive behaviour towards themselves. Cognitive dysregulation would be number three. So it's like, and so that can be stress-induced depersonalisation, dissociation, that kind of thing. Right? Dysregulation of the sense of self. So this is a, I I have no sense of self. I feel like I'm an empty individual. Mm -hmm. And interpersonal dysregulation. So chaotic, intense relationships, hard to end relationships, even though those relationships might be bad for them, mm. frantic efforts to avoid abandonment, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. The, and this is the biosocial theory of BPD is like this, this biological dysfunction in the emotional regulation system and it seems to be like combined with an invalidating environment according to this theory. This then results in a, in a disorder of emotional dysregulation mm-hmm. is kind of the thing. So what, what would you call an invalidating environment? How would you describe that? People who have BPD often describe their environments when they were growing up as things like uh, if they'd hurt themselves or um, would get upset about something that their parent would really dismiss them or say, you know, don't be silly, stop crying or not even notice that, yeah. that they were quite seriously hurt. Um, so that kind of dismissive thing in terms of pain or dismissive in terms of what they wanted or needed. Yeah. So you child sort of be quite that. distressed from say a trauma yeah. particularly and then they'd be like oh, mum didn't believe me when I yeah. when I told them that exactly uh, this sexual assault had happened to me that yeah. kind of thing. So um it's certainly one I've heard from a couple of patients I had. So And I think that earlier on in um, research into borderline there was far more focus on things like physical and sexual trauma. And then recently they've kind of gone, actually, it's it's neglect as well. Yeah. And that the absence of anyone responding to day-to-day stuff can have just as much of an impact on all of those areas yeah. as sort of the things that we might traditionally think of as, yeah. as trauma. So being consistently told that your perspective on the world is wrong yes. is just as destabilising so, for a child as... Yeah, it invalidates someone's internal experience of yeah. the world. And, yeah. and then what happens is you don't then trust your own emotions exactly. and feelings feelings and thoughts. And that's the problem with cognitive behavioural therapy as a treatment approach because mm. it kind of it kind of repeats that mm. in a way. Yeah, it gets you to challenge the reality of your internal yeah. world. Yeah. So the theory through this is that borderline behaviours are seen to as, as functioning to as attempts to regulate emotions mm. or as a consequence of the emotional dysregulation, right? Yeah, so it's not, I think, you know, you often hear people describing this population as manipulative and it's not, it's it's more that, say, self-harm is a way to express their need for things to change or as a way of regulating their emotions rather than and it, and I think it, to and manipulate someone else. Yeah, and it kind of, it does actually trigger responses, but borderline individuals, more often than not, are not actually probably conscious of 
that response mm. in what they're doing. It's just that that response is rewarded. Yeah, uh, it meets that. people follow that. So sort of it meets the need that was there, but perhaps not in the intended way. It's yeah. not like... Well, or they, well someone might self-harm mm. because they're distressed, mm. but that self-harm then triggers a, a particular kind of response from people around them yeah. that then you know, like rewards the behaviour. Mm. And so... The next time they get distressed, their conscious, unconscious processing might be more like, okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll self-harm. Mm. People not, will not, help me if I self-harm. Well, but maybe not even thinking mm. that. Yeah. It's that kind of thing. It's, yeah. It's probably Just, what I think it's about. It's more automatic than yeah. that. Yeah. And there's also this idea about like emotional vulnerability. So that s- some individuals just have higher um, baseline emotional mm-hmm. vulnerability. And you would know that like if you think about the like people you've gone to school with, for example, there's some people, like the slightest thing would send them off and mm. other people would be like, you know, and I remember hearing something about astronauts and basically sort of saying, you know, they've got like no emotional, you know, variability. They're kind of like, yes, and the uh, back of the uh, space shuttle has fallen off <laughs> and so we will just do that. You know, that kind of... <laughs> yeah, and it's was, not the same sort of sensitivity to the environment. Well, the, yeah, there was a recent thing that was shown on Twitter. There was a, a plane in... in the United States mm, where the, the engine blew up and and so they were flying with one engine and I think someone got half sucked out of the plane yeah. and the pilot was a ex, she was an ex-military pilot and there's an audio of her saying, like coming and saying, so she's like, yes, part of the plane has actually fallen off. Hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, and it's just straight to the point. There's no freaking out. Yeah, yeah you know, like kind of yeah. like, yeah, okay, you know, well, what altitude should we be flying at? Mm. <laughs> you know, that kind of yeah. like really, really... It's um, who um, you want flying a plane. Yeah, who you want flying a plane, yeah, right. Yeah. So sort of the goal of therapy really is to improve the modulation of emotions. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you get, otherwise you get mood-dependent behavior, mm-hmm. right, which is what you kind of want to reduce. And when we're talking about invalidating environments, some of the stuff that they talk about is like, you know, rejecting someone's self-description is inaccurate, rejecting someone's response to events is incorrect, pathologize, like, oh, you're crazy, mm. or attributing response to a socially undesirable facet. It's like, well, that's because you're useless. Yeah. Yeah, those kinds of things. That's mm. So uh, mental note, any parent mm. <laughs> <laughs> probably do some of those in your day-to-day life, but it's like you'd have to do that a lot. Yeah, it's, it's a pervasive response that happens for yeah. yeah a long period yeah and so what's interesting about this with borderline patients is that they are very good at social reading social cues mm. like for all the kinds of problems that they experience and report they are incredibly good at reading people's reactions because they've had to learn that mm. it kind of comes with the sensitivity to environment yeah, yeah. yeah that kind of stuff they haven't learned to express emotions accurately or communicate uh, or, or communicate pain accurately. Mm. And so they go to extremes and they haven't learned to tolerate distress. And so they essentially they like what is, you know, they're using strategies to self-regulate and they also kind of classically set unrealistic goals. Mm. I'm going to see goals, they fail, and then they have high negative responses to that, emotional mm. responses. So that's kind of a bit of theory. So DBT, it's this... Balance between acceptance and change. If we accept all the time, then there's no change, mm-hmm. right? But if we focus on change all the time, it's invalidating. Yeah. And I think that's probably why I, as a clinician, struggle a little bit with this idea of like the flavor of the, the year mm. or a couple of years of mindfulness because like, mm. there's 
know. It feels too much at the accepting end of things. Yeah, yeah, that kind of stuff. But And they have a focus on validation in DBT, like so validating emotions. And, and I find that really interesting. It's a, it's a fairly typical approach. You know, it's about listening, validating their emotions, exploring and understanding what's happened. But there's also this kind of like hardcore notion of validation, mm. which is I'm not going to help you because that would be invalidating you. It's like idea of I think you can do this. Mm. And so the reason I'm not helping you to work out how to um, say, for example, mm. I was thinking of a good example of like there was someone who was trying to work something out with a video camera and record it mm-hmm. and they're like, oh, what can you do? You know, how can you help me? Can you help me? I'm like, no, no, I think you can work this out yourself. Yeah. Like, yeah. Which, so which, which is like a bit of a bit of an asshole kind of move, but like yeah. that that that's a classic kind of yeah um, thing. So, and I think that's I think they they could term that radical genuineness, like mm. treating the client as capable, effective, and reasonable, and not fragile. You know, you help the client in their world, and you treat them as capable. You know, oh, you've got a problem with the doctor. Well, then maybe you need to speak to them. Like, mm. I know I could go speak to them, yeah. but how can we help you do you it? You to do that, yeah. You know, do you reckon you could do it? Mm. How would you do it? The problem is that, like, I, I find, I don't know if you've had experiences, but with borderline patients, you can be triggered into helping them without mm. them actually asking you. Mm. Yeah, and that's a really common response is that kind of, even if you talk to someone and you find them describing the people around them and things like that, they've often got a lot of people helping them, a lot of different services, a lot of a lot of that going on. Mm. And, I mean, certainly from other clinicians I've spoken to, there's sort of, there seems to be two patterns of responses, either that sort of like I'm absolutely jumping in and helping and realising, hang on a minute, I did that without them even asking, mm. or the other end of it of kind of like stepping back. Like, like really stepping back. Yeah. And like, I think probably my tendency is more the step back end of yeah, things. Yeah, so I think I'm, I think I'm probably the other way. Yeah, like, so and that's how I know when I'm working with someone who might have some <laughs> of these traits is I kind of go, why am I withdrawing? Yeah. Normally at this point I'd be engaging more. What's, yeah. Yeah. what's like, going on in the room that makes me want to step back. back? Yeah, so I mean like for a good, a good example was I was working with a young girl who I, well, she didn't have BPD but mm. she had elements. You, you could probably argue that there was elements there and – she came in and there was some problem with her home family environment and so she needed and she'd sort of either been kicked out or was like she needed to not be there for for a short period of time Mm -hmm. and uh i found myself calling she had a couple of numbers and i called those people and i was like what am i doing yeah that's not my usual role that's not. yeah i mean i'd also done some like suicide risk stuff just recently and that I talked about like homelessness is really bad blah, yeah. blah, blah. and yeah. so I think that, that in my You're mind sort of primed for it as well. <laughs> I, was, I was really primed for it for some other stuff and and but it was really and it was like it was a, sort of a fairly acute hmm. thing but I, I remember going that that's unusual for me to be doing yeah like I wouldn't it doesn't normally, fit with my usual I wouldn't practice. normally do that yeah. so th- this is this is what I'm talking about in terms of like you get triggered to mm. do it, right? So, so DBT is like this approach where you have individual therapy and then you also have like a group program mm. that's usually probably two hours a week, the group program. Yeah. And that's where you learn skills. Like the, the predominantly, like there's a lot of emotional regulation skills that they, they and learn. And it's very 
it's a very structured group. Yeah. There's, you know, any talking about ex- your own experiences or things like that is limited to what happened when you tried to use last week's skills. And so it's very, um, it's very focused on those practical skills and, and ways of coping with a different one each week yeah. um, and moving through that. So it's, it's quite interesting. It's, it's very structured. Yeah. yeah. And, and, which it, and it reminds me a bit of like drug and alcohol work. Mm. They also have telephone consultations so you can get called and get coached. And the, this, this thing is like, you know, call me before something happens, yeah. not after. Like Which, is, again, is why it's really handy to be in a team because yeah. then there can be a roster of people who are able to answer the phone yeah. at different times because yeah. someone might call at any point during the week. Yeah, but then also the team mm. needs to be on the same page. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Which is very difficult. With well, It's very, very difficult anyway, mm. but also with a complicated problem mm. like DPT, uh, like uh, BPD, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and so what they do is they have a therapist consultant meeting as well mm. to address problems that arise really and to hold therapists within the framework and quote, treating clients with BPD is enormously stressful and staying within the DPT therapeutic framework can be tremendously difficult. Mm. It's like a direct. Yeah. <laughs> so he's like, oh, goody. Yeah. Uh, you don't see that about like phobia treatment no. <laughs> or something like that. So No, you don't. And you can have some other parts like pharmacotherapy and acute patient in, acute inpatient psychiatric stuff, which mm. unfortunately may not reward, like or the yeah. dis, may not reward the dysfunctional behaviour the way you want. Unfortunately, mm. so so several stages of treatment with DBT you have like the, and a big part of it is this like pre-treatment, which is this like orientating and committing mm. an individual to this because like so it'd be, it's like i think the classic is like like a 12 month program is that right yeah yeah so it's sort of 12 months for the first stage of dbt for example at um one of the public services in melbourne that provides it they do for 12 months you do weekly therapy so one hour a week and then you have weekly group so that's two hours a week um and that cycles through a range of of the skills in a set order twice so that you can go through that group program twice, mm. six-month group program, phone coaching during that time as well, and then you sort of graduate from mm. the program. Yeah. But your work's not done. No. Like, that's the first phase. So it's a big commitment for people. Mm. Um, and, and, like, and sort of this paradoxically, like, it's a big, big commitment for people who – uh, can often find just getting to therapy difficult. Exactly. Like, yeah, which is part of the rationale for that pre-commitment yeah. phase. Yeah, there's a lot of psychoeducation and then there's like, it's going to be hard. Are mm. you sure you really want to do this mm. um, approach? So the the four stages, there's like the number, like stage one, which is what we're talking about, like is it attaining basic capabilities. Like you know, basically just getting getting knocking this dangerous stuff on its head a bit better, yeah. right? So that it's not some... It's a, and building a life that's worth living. It's not a suicide prevention program. No. It's it's not that. No. And it also includes that sort of therapy interfering stuff yeah. as well. So things like what gets in the way of you coming to sessions. Yeah. You know, if your car's always breaking down, what do we need to do for you to be able to reliably get here on yeah. time? Things like that. So it's kind of... Like, it's and the, those have to be addressed. Like, yeah, yeah. Which is it's really, that sort of basic. You have to stay alive, safe, and get here. Yeah, yeah. And if, basics. And if, and if we're not doing that, 
then yeah. we're not like we need to talk about those things. Yeah. Like we can talk about other stuff, but we have to talk about that stuff. Yeah. So it's it's really so this is real directive and really directive approach. And I, like I've got to say, when I read Marsha Linehan's work, I get a sense of just how direct she must be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, absolutely. And and you you and when she argues around the in the couple of things I've read of hers, there's like a literature review on you know the effectiveness of DBT versus mm-hmm. other stuff, and it's really direct. Like it's like overwhelmingly argued yeah. that this is that, no this this treatment works and the other treatments do not. Yes. Or they or they yeah. kind of work, but this one's better. Yeah. But the, you're left in no doubt that like this is what we're doing. And this, and it's not subtle. It's no and, and straight down the line. And I and I I think you imagine that that's being bred mm. bred from having like this is a, this is what you need to do. Yeah. The the other stages, <clears throat> which we won't talk about too much, but they're like say stage two. So once you kind of got these basic capacities done, post traumatic stress reduction would be stage two, and then number three would be resolving problems and living. So this is like really increasing respect for yourself, mm. and then number four would be attaining capacity for freedom and sustained commit- contentment. And I guess the thing about those stages as well is that often they loop a bit. So yeah. say you get to stage three, and then the suicidality comes up again, you don't keep on working at the stage three things. You go back to the basics again. Yeah, right. And so sometimes it, it's not a it's not a linear program a progress that can be quite cyclical because I mean, a part of this disorder is that when things change too much then that's scary and it kind of has that pull back. Mm. And mm. so people sort of gradually loop. Yeah loop through it so it's not like you've achieved stage one now you get to move on to yeah. stage two and I mean, it's kind I, of, I yeah think, i mean that's a, which a, is the way with a lot of therapy yeah 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 i mean like, <laughs> it's just not as defined probably in a lot of therapy no no so let's talk stage one mm-hmm. right so break it down to three parts reducing life-threatening behaviors because mm-hmm. we need to keep them alive. Yeah, important. Taking and, and they take it very seriously. So, mm-hmm. and there is a temptation as a therapist to go, okay, well, you passed that difficult bit, so let's not worry about it, mm-hmm. and we'll, we'll talk on the real stuff yeah. rather than talking on the hard stuff. Yeah, and I mean that's tracked weekly for the entire way through about how often you've engaged in whatever your usual behaviour of mm-hmm. um, life-threatening behaviour is. Yeah. So it's sort of constantly monitored. It's not pushed to the side, like you said. Yeah, and as a therapist, yeah. therapist and client can collude to not talk about difficult things. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really interesting with, when that happens. Other other parts, therapy interfering behaviours, like we're talking about. So that's like you know being late, mm. missing appointments, being hostile towards a therapist, quality of life behaviours. So that might be like drinking, drinking alcohol, mm. poor diet, and the idea of like increasing behavioural skills. So like we were just saying, therapy interfering behaviours are addressed before client and therapist get so annoyed with each other that they want to stop. Mm. Right. Like that that's like this is what we want what we want to do. Right. So and it's not just what the client can do, it's what also the therapist might do. So mm. the therapist might be inadvertently re- reinforcing the wrong thing. Or the therapist might be running late mm. or not returning calls quick enough. So those things need to be addressed. Yeah. I remember seeing a DPT sheet where there's like commitments on for both therapist and client. Mm. About how they're going expectations, to expectations, yeah. so that they're both clear, right? So, skills training is an important part, as we've been talking about, which is that group stuff. So, mm. mindfulness skills, distress tolerance, emotional regulation skills, interpersonal effectiveness skills. So, really, the aim is just 
reducing labile emotions, reducing mm. the chaos, impulsiveness, uh, reducing the confusion about yourself. This is the function of the group. Yeah. And, and then I I find those kind of relational skills really interesting. Yeah, right. They're, they're sort of things that would be really great if everybody knew how to do. Yeah, I know. I, like I think about doing like the, the DBT group. I think oh, I'd be fascinated to yeah. like, be... Be a participant, see see how it goes. Because they're just basic things like, okay, you're annoyed at someone. What are the steps that you have to go through to effectively communicate that you're annoyed without launching into screaming at them or threatening them or or withdrawing or withdrawing or yeah. anything like that? Like, how do you effectively do that? Yeah. So it's quite interesting and would probably make a lot of people's sort of relationships a lot easier if they knew how to do that parenting (laughs) work um, all sorts of things yeah Yeah, that kind of stuff Uh, you know and it also is like this approach of like you know what's the the most severe thing that's happened Mm. you have to talk about it yeah like it's that kind of approach so you could imagine like it'd be fairly confronting initially Mm. treatment strategies in dbt are interesting because they're not prescribed they're not a prescribed order Mm. so classic cbt uh, manuals, they kind of have, they will follow a structured mm. approach. I mean, a lot of therapists don't no. do that, but the, but even in principle, yeah, uh, yeah, the um, and but even just like a general principles will be you do behavioral goals mm. first and then you do cognitive strategies mm. sort of a couple of sessions down the track, yeah, because th- that's the way it works better, mm. right? So, but they kind of talk about it as like the intent of therapy is applied rather than a rigid series of tasks. And this is the emphasis of flipping between the different strategies as you need to do it. Mm. And and that fits with like someone who's emotionally dysregulated. Yeah. Right. Because they, they flip themselves. So you have to respond. Yeah. It's no good sticking to the plan that you had at the outset if that's not where the person's at. No. And if you've ever worked with someone with, with borderline, like – you will know that therapy, like more than any other thing, will not run according to plan. Mm. And it then, can feel quite reactive. Yeah, and, it's, and that's complicated mm. because then you are being reactive and then are you actually getting anywhere? Yeah. That comes up. So it's, it's a real, it's that dialectical it's that balance, tension. Yeah. yeah. So there's like a whole lot of strategies. They're talking about like five main strategies dialectical strategies, core strategies, stylistic strategies, case management and integrative strategies. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of stuff. I'm not going to talk about all of that. <laughs> what I thought I would, I think I'll talk about dialectical strategies and maybe the other, of the like the next two. Mm-hmm. The dialectical strategies I think are really, really interesting just to hear about. So this is like how the therapist balances the tensions within therapy, balancing the acceptance of what is and the efforts to change what is. Right, so mm-hmm. it's like, what are we accepting? What are we trying to change? Yeah, like this goal of bringing out opposites both in therapy and life, and providing these conditions for synthesis. Change is facilitated by acceptance. Acceptance by facilitating change. Mm. So, kind yeah. of, they're going to go hand in hand. Really? Yeah. yeah. I mean, and like that's that challenge is not unique to treatment of borderline personality. It's no. actually it's with everything common to all therapy, mm. but it's it's really made the centerpiece of hmm. DBT and teaching this dialectical thinking to the client, moving from this either or way to a both and mm. position, if you kind of get that. And importantly, making sure not to invalidate the one idea when discussing the second. 
Yeah. Yeah. So. Which is tricky. Yeah, which is tricky. Yeah. Um, and it's something that just as humans, everyone struggles with. Like, yeah. you know, we all have the tendency to kind of lump everything into one basket. Like we're sort of it's designed much, well, to understand easier, things in kind of categories and lump yeah. things together, simplify it down. Yeah. It's quite complicated. Yeah. So, but then once you kind of get it in your head, it's like mm. it actually is it really, really, it works. Mm. Like it works really well somehow. It's yeah. kind of like immersion therapy for our language. Yeah. You know, it's like somehow like it's just something clicks and it makes it much, much more sense. Yeah. So some of the strategies that I think are kind of interesting, one of them is like called entering the paradox. So clients are free to choose their own behavior, but they cannot stay in therapy unless they change their behavior. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. They're taught to achieve greater independence by becoming more skilled at asking for help from others. Yeah. Right? Clients have a right to kill themselves, but if they convince them the therapist that suicide is imminent, they may be locked up. Yeah. The aim really is to let go of rigid patterns of thinking. Mm. That's what we wanted to do. And which is like the rigid patterns of thinking exist in anxiety, exist in depression, yeah. all sorts and schizophrenia, all sorts of stuff like that. Yeah. Like, so... And you're wanting to develop more flexible, spontaneous mm. patterns. They use metaphors, so like easy to remember. Like it's easy to remember stories. Yeah. And if you frequently, if you talk to someone about the therapy, they say, "Oh, you know, well, my client, my my therapist told me that learning these skills is like making a, a track through the bush, mm. right? You know, I've got to I've got to clear the land, the thing, but then I've also got to go back to the start of the track every now and then to clear back the undergrowth that's grown whilst I was." doing the other thing you know, yeah. it's, a, you know it's, it's a way of kind of understanding the therapy process and that kind of stuff mm. so devil's advocate which i think is really interesting <laughs> it sounds really fun but it's like you use this to challenge an unhelpful belief or rules so it's, it's an it is an argumentative approach mm. client might say oh because i'm overweight i should be dead mm. right and then the therapist would argue for it. it's like well, well i guess in all overweight people should be dead and if you're overweight well then looking at me I'm, I'm overweight too so i should be dead too probably should we go out like i wonder if we went out into the waiting room mm. i wonder how many over pe- overweight people out there would be you know and yeah the uh, i mean i'm doing it in a kind of a clumsy way mm. but the idea would be you would want to invite counter argument mm. yeah yeah try and prompt the client into going well no that's not that's so not what I'm saying. No, so, right. so, no, but you should. No, no, no. You, you don't need to be dead. Yeah, it's just me. Just me. So, well, no, but like that rule, mm. if, like, like we'd have to apply that rule. Like, and they'd be like, no, no, but, you know. And so what you're trying to do is, is again, like challenge this unhelpful mm. set of rules. But rather than you being the one to challenge the client by saying, oh, no, that's not correct. Yeah you're encouraging them to do it to yeah. themselves. And it reminds me a lot of motivational interviewing yeah. strategies. Yeah. So there's this idea of extending, which is taken from the martial art of Aikido, mm. where you would wait for an attacker to complete their movement and then you would pull them, mm-hmm. like move, like use their movement to put, pull them off balance and then leave them vulnerable. Yeah. So it's the emotional equivalent of devil's advocate. So you would use it when someone's threatening self-harm or suicide to produce change. So the client says, oh, if I don't get an appointment tomorrow, like they might be on the phone or something, mm. it's like, you know, if I don't get an appointment tomorrow, I don't know if, I'm, if, I'm, if I can stop myself from killing myself. Yeah. And then the therapist would be like, oh, my gosh, you're at that much risk at the moment? Mm. Okay, well, like, let's, let, we need to do that. And the client would be like, no, 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 I just really need to get an appointment for you tomorrow. It's like, no, no, I'm, we, how can we talk about 
and make an appointment tomorrow, like you've just told me that you might be at risk of killing yourself. Do I need to send an ambulance? Mm. Right. So there's this, um, you're focusing on, you're focusing on the risk and not the appointment, mm. right? Which is not what the client is wanting. Yeah, they want the focus on the appointment, not on the yeah, yeah. like that kind of stuff. And so you're trying to reduce that reward mm. of of that kind of behaviour. Lemonade out of lemons. This is from the psychodam- psychodynamic. Really, it's like using in psychodynamic literature, they say it's like you're using someone's resistances to help them, mm. like which is that sort of psychodynamic. Li- turn so really turning something problematic into an asset but you also need to not insist that someone's lemons aren't actually lemons yeah right you still need to validate yeah and so you need to like this is kind of like say you need to have a really good therapy relationship at this Mm. point to do that yeah because you need to do that respectfully Mm. the cloud is black but it does have a silver lining Mm. right you know and like i remember sort of saying somebody well you know they say i do nothing Mm. You know, all I do is come here. It's like, yeah, but you do. But you, how do you come here? Yeah. What is it that you do to come here? Mm. Isn't that amazing that everything else is going wrong? But you still get here. But you still manage to come and see me every week. Mm. Now, what, like, how are you able to do that? Mm. Is kind of a, a little bit of a version of it, and you can use that to highlight a quality, yeah. that kind of thing. And I, and I often think that people underestimate like the. I think they sort of see therapy as a lifeline. Mm. In, in many cases, it might be, but they underestimate just how difficult it is for a lot of people to get to therapy. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And if 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 you do, if you are someone that goes to therapy, pat yourself on the back, mm. and like that's a takes that's, a lot of work. It does take a lot of yeah. work, and and therapists often don't communicate the the, the huge amount of respect we have for that. Yeah. Right? So so that's kind of like the dialectical strategies, this core strategies, which is really just about acceptance and change. So really. There's two two sizes, validation mm-hmm. and problem solving. And so these need to be in balance in a session. So if you focus on modifying dysfunctional thoughts, behaviours, schemas, critiquing things, you can recreate the invalidating environment. You can confirm the worst fear that the client is a problem mm. and that they can't trust their feelings. Similarly, if you just focus on acceptance-based therapy, so just mindfulness, yeah. right, then it's invalidating because the therapist, it seems like the therapist doesn't believe that your problems are real yeah right doesn't seem like they think it's a problem let's just do a mindfulness thing so Mm. but i'm just telling you Mm. like so i mean how would you describe validation like what would you i think it's about kind of matching the client where they are that you understand that that thing or that emotion is a problem for them or is distressing at the level where they're finding it distressing that it's real that it's you're not kind of overestimating it or dismissing it it's sort of in that or underestimating it i think is more the problem yeah definitely i mean i find as a therapist i'm often arguing say no like it's okay to be upset about this in Mm. fact like i'm actually surprised you're not more uh, you're not more distressed yeah and you should be angry about yeah yeah sometimes it's about validating someone's perspective on things that a particular interaction is mm. um has the, gone the way that it, they thought it did or whatever yeah. it's and, and the, kind of the, the the emotion that you are feeling mm. makes sense to me yeah yeah like it's yeah a you know it's like, response. it's like yeah it's like yeah you know like from the outside that might seem a bit strange but actually no now that you've explained it to me that makes a lot of sense mm. it's like of course well that makes sense in context of what you've uh, been through yeah or, yeah in context yeah. of what you've been through and the context of that situation mm. right so i remember having a conversation with a client who didn't have borderline personality mm. who was 
talking to me about one of her parents who really like her response was like, oh, you know, my mum always manages to catch health problems before they become a problem. Mm-hmm. And, and like she was kind of annoyed. Yeah. And and you kind of like, isn't that good that they <laughs> got the cancer early rather than late? Like, yeah. but, but then she explained like a whole lot of stuff around the history of the way that her mum would act and blah, blah, blah. Mm. And so, and then suddenly that kind of made sense. About why she would be annoyed yeah. about that. Yeah, yeah. but like, and so that's, that. I mean, that's a good, that's another way of validating. Mm. So kind of go, okay, well, what, like, hang on, explain that to me. Mm. Okay, now I get it. Yeah. yeah. That kind of thing, so... And problem solving, this is this kind of classic CBT kind of stuff like what could have you done differently there mm-hmm. is kind of a, a sort of a, what I gather as a DBT phrase. Mm. At what point could have you done something different? Yeah. That kind of thing. So they're very, very focused on though, what could have you done? Mm. How could we change that? The other interesting part is stylistic. So this is sort of my last bit. I know we've been going for a while. So is stylistic changes, strategies, right? So... There's two kinds of things. So it's reciprocal communication and irreverent communication. So reciprocal communication is this responsive. You would, as a therapist, you would self-disclose in a limited way. You'd be warm and engagement and genuine. So you're serving to validate, but also to challenge. Client might fail to fill out diary cards and pleads with the therapist to help help her. Mm-hmm. And you might say. You just keep asking me for help, but you don't do the things I believe are necessary to help you. I feel frustrated because I want to help you, but you won't let me. Yeah. So you're, as a therapist, owning your own emotion. Mm-hmm. Not just coming across as a, a blank slate or... Or pretending that or you're pretending not... That you're or not annoyed. pretending you're not frustrated. Because yeah. that, that client is going to pick up on that, mm. right? Which is not typically how you're trained. No. It no. takes a lot of confidence. Yeah, Definitely. Yeah, because you're sort of trained to be a little bit like warm, but while still sort of detached and keeping your own emotions out of it. Yeah. 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 This idea, oh, you know, as a therapist, I have to uh, be detached and not mm. not show my feelings about yeah. something. Yeah. When, when you're working with a population who can read your emotions better than you can read them, mm. probably, yeah. then you need to actually just own it. So mm. you can disclose about yourself as a therapist, but only if you've mastered the problem at hand. So mm. you can't say, yeah, I struggle with getting up too. Mm. You can say, I struggle with getting up too, but the thing that I have found is I do X. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So you're not deflecting away from the problem. But yeah. 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 And and as a and, and, and frequent kind of thing is, yeah, it is difficult to get up. In the, like, yeah, I struggle with getting up in the morning mm. too. Like you're kind of leaving them with no solution. Mm. Yeah. So, and this other, other one is like a reverent communication. So you try and give a response that is not what the client would ever expect. Mm. So it's offbeat, get some off balance. You present a different viewpoint. It must be genuine, not sarcastic. It must be warm. So someone say, I might, uh, I'm going to kill myself. And your response was like, well, I thought you'd agreed not to drop out of therapy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's humor, but it's confrontational. Mm. And it's, and essentially, and they say this, communicating bullshit to non-adaptive mm. responses. It's like, like, for example, you weren't for a minute believing I think that I would think that that was a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. So it's very, very genuine. And you might, or you could call, call their bluff, like, oh, I'm quitting therapy. And mm. you say, okay, would you like a referral? Yeah. Right. So it's like you call their bluff, but within that, you would also be offering them a way out. It's like, well, if you are going to quit, yeah. This is the Here, way. This is the other this option. Is, yeah, yeah, right. Mm. So um, it's not just going. See ya. 
No. Yeah. So, and just as a postscript, like the chapter that I read, and I'll put the link in the pod. Mm. I think it's from a book. It, it's a Linehan written chapter. Mm-hmm. I think the book is edited by Barlow. The chapter on DBT gives this fascinating case example of a BPD client, mm-hmm. like runs across several pages. It's really, really long. And perhaps what's really interesting is the postscript to the case. So that they published you know, the publisher chapter, and then after the first thing, that the patient actually killed themselves. Mm. And so they – and they talk a little bit about like, well, you know, maybe they didn't want to just present it in a rosy Yeah, they wanted perspective to give because, context. Yeah, but they also wanted to show that, you know what, actually this is hard work and sometimes it doesn't work. Yeah. And they kind of conduct this fascinating discussion of what might have gone wrong, what might have been missed, and they kind of identified that every that they'd missed that every suicide attempt had been when the hope for this person's relationship, ex relationship, had completely been extinguished. Yeah. And you know, there's this kind of story of like the client had actually contacted the therapist and had a phone session, and the client was with the housemate. And so then there was a plan involved and they thought it was all going to be okay and then, they, and then mm. they found the client had killed themselves the next day. And sort of like also this discussion around kind of like the impact that that had on the DBT group yeah, and how some of the clients had quit, then subsequently quit the group. And this discussion, this really kind of genuine warm discussion of like how a therapist cannot save a client but only a client can save themselves. Mm. And that is a really important thing to kind of keep in mind. So, I mean, it was really, I mean, it's a bit of a downer to end on, but <laughs> it was a really, really genuine approach. Mm. And I, I like, I really appreciate like the, the honesty in the writing around that. Like, whereas yeah. I, I, f- I find with some therapy manuals, like, it's like, just do this and this is the way you do it. And then this is the problem finished. And you're like, this yeah. Like, and Bertie was happy forever. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, oh, you know, the therapist says this and this is what the client responds. You're mm. like, most of the time it doesn't work like that, no. man. No, most so. of the time they don't respond the way you think they will. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you you have, before we go to a break, you have some critiques around DBT and, and your, ex- I like think your kind of experience I, of it? Well, I feel like, so I haven't had a huge amount of experience with it. I've sat in on assessment sessions and in pre-contemplation and then in some sessions in that sort of mid-phase and in a um, couple of skills groups. And I think I think for me I find that it's, I appreciate the therapy for what it is, but I also know that it's not the sort of therapy that I can deliver. So it doesn't fit with my perspective as a therapist or the way that I naturally engage with people. Mm. So I think it's the hard line end of things that doesn't fit with the way that that I would work. Mm. And so I'm not entirely comfortable with it. Like I feel like... Um, a lot of it depends on the therapist qualities and how they deliver those things. Yeah. Like some of some of those comments and some of those kind of challenges and things like that. The same words can be used but with a different tone of voice can entirely change things for how oh, it's felt by the client. So I feel like that I have seen it delivered in a few different ways and some of the ways have been quite harsh and have kind of induced shame rather than self-reflection. Mm. And that's where I've got my hesitation of that kind of, there are some things that are quite hard to teach people to do, Mm. to teach Mm. therapists to say things in particular ways or things like that. And because it is a hard line, like there are set rules, 
I think it can come across as punitive mm. and there's an art to it, how you actually deliver mm. that. See, I think I, I think I, I read it and like I'm very interested in attaining the skills. Like I like that using techniques well and yeah. kind of and it speaks to sort of other aspects of my personality and stuff. So I think mm. when I read it, like that's what I get. I think my kind of feel satisfying yeah like yeah. i think oh gosh if i could do all these things i'd be a really good therapist yeah. right you know, it's such an intense program yeah. and it's such a resource heavy yeah it's, it's approach it's a tricky one from a practicality perspective and i don't think many places offer it so no and certainly they don't offer the full program a lot of places yeah and a lot of people drop out because yeah. it's so intensive. yeah and i mean i think and i think that's an interesting thing and i've obviously not read studies around it but you can have a you can have a treatment that works but Mm. if if you have a high dropout rate yeah what does that say about the treatment Mm. and i think i always think that's very interesting it's like you can have something it's like yeah no look we know this works yeah we know that it's safe for exposure for trauma works Mm. for like just to change change topics but getting people to do trauma exposure yeah. It's really, it's like, really hard. It's really hard, and yeah. it's really hard work. Yeah. And so, should you really be doing that? Mm. You know, like I think it's it, it's, it's an interesting question, and I think also because with with this one, because of some of the rules that go along with it, sometimes the dropout is can be seen as therapist driven because it will be like there'll be a established amount of sessions say that you can miss mm. before then there has to be a serious discussion about your commitment to dbt and so it might be that if you miss three sessions in a row or whatever that then you're exited from the program mm. and for a group that really struggles to attend therapy and stuff like that you could see how that would be perceived in different ways like mm. it could be delivered in a way that's kind of like yeah you're right I'm not ready for this at the moment or it could be you're rejecting me or I'm trying to get help and no one's helping like you could see how it would play out in lots of different ways Mm. and and you can say the words but it it might not mean it may not be received Mm, yeah it's it's an interesting one and and also I think it's it's I think it's interesting for people who are not involved in the DBT team Mm. to then know what to do when someone yeah. falls off, runs afoul of the rules of DBT. Yeah. So uh, that has to be communicated so clearly. Yeah. So you know. So you can. And I've certainly had examples of this where someone has been has has been kicked out temporarily of DBT mm. because of you know they either self harmed or they or yeah. they did what whatever the rule was, right. And then they go see the GP going mm. like, I need to, I need, like, I feel I'm at risk. Mm. I need to get some support. And if you're a doctor or if you're a psychologist mm. and someone's coming to you and saying, look, I need some support. I feel I'm at risk. Mm. You're kind of duty bound. Like, Absolutely. And or, there's a whole lot of ethical stuff that comes with being a health professional. And it's really pretty specific with psychology about yeah managing this, that this, risk and well, responding well there's and there's there are not too many hard and fast rules in no. psychology there's what one is don't sleep with your clients yep um number two is probably don't sleep with your clients yep. and then number, number three, three is like is do a suicide assessment and mm. manage and and self-harm risk mm. right so and that all other kind of rules go out the window if someone's really at risk you do what you have to do to help keep them safe yeah. in terms of confidentiality or um, yes. getting well, other services involved. Well, I would say all rules go out the window, rules. but... You, you still don't. No, sorry. 
you still doing this? No, but like a, a lot of those kind of general principles about autonomy and confidentiality and yeah. things like that, they all shift to yeah, yeah, the, the prime focus is you keep this client the, alive if you can. The time you can break confidentiality mm. is if you think someone's going to hurt themselves. Yeah. Right. And then you, and you have to. Yeah. Right. There's no kind of like, oh, I don't want you to tell him. It's like, no, I'm going to have to do that. I'm sorry. And then the laws back that up as well, like the Mental Health Act and things like that. So it all, yeah, it's tricky if you're not. The yep. psychologist that's in that DBT team, yep. or you're not a professional that's in yeah. that environment, and then you've got someone seeking help in distress. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's a lot of tensions there. So it's it's interesting, and I hope that uh, we've done it justice. I know that that was a long conversation, but I hope that we have not made too many mistakes in discussing <laughs> it. Um, and if you you've got any more comments around it or. Uh, want to add anything, please let us know um, on Twitter or uh, emails, emails or messages directly. So, yeah. should we have a break? Yes, let's do it. Okay, bye. In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. Thanks for listening to Two Shrinks Pod. <laughs> I've been torturing Hunter in our break and uh, we'd like to ask you to say lovely things about us in public. Uh, so if you could rate us on iTunes, leave us a comment, uh, tweet at us, send us anything that's interesting at Two Shrinks Pod, send us private emails with sort of whispers of congratulations. Yeah. Yeah, things that you're not willing to say in public. Even if you've got ideas, that kind of stuff. Mm. So, Any article you've stumbled across that you think that we should look at. Yeah. Um, something that we got wrong that you'd really like to correct us on. I'm just waiting for you to like just go off track. Yeah, see, this is the, the fun bit about this, is that then you're so intent on me going off track that now my mind's gone, huh, let's just stay focused. <laughs> I find it really unsettling. I know, you look so panicked. <laughs> So we are back. I totally we we I made hot chocolate and I made it with like cocoa. I think I yeah. na- I think I nailed that. Yeah, it's it's really good. <laughs> yeah, you did well. We just ran out of Milo. So no, you wanted something special. You wanted to go to the effort because you're here. Hot chocolate. Yeah. No. <laughs> Jeez. Just. So we, uh, so Knock me, Jack. that's it. So this is the, uh, this is a segment of the show we call things we came across where we talk about a couple of things that we came across during the week. What have you got for us? Okay. So I kind of stumbled on this, kind of looked for it. Mm-hmm. I was looking for, so at the moment in Melbourne, the weather's starting to get cold and the majority of people around me are grumbling and going, oh, you know, it's the end of summer. And acting as this is a terrible thing. And I'm deliriously happy that it's getting colder. <laughs> and going, woohoo, rain. Um, and people are looking at me like there's something wrong with me. So I went. I, I do like the idea of like being able to wear a scarf and a coat again. Yeah. yeah. You love a scarf. Oh, I'm yeah. such a therapist. Yeah. <laughs> scarf, some angular glasses. You're good to go. Camper shoes. Yeah. yeah that's it. Anyway. Yeah. Who needs training? Um, <laughs> So the, uh, the the mundane Swiss railway watch yeah. comes standard with your APS membership yeah. and the tan pants for men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Floaty tops and graphic jewelry for women. <laughs> <laughs> the point is, 
is that I thought, I wonder if there's anything out there about like personality or mood changes or whatever with season. Yeah. Because obviously there's stuff around seasonal affective disorder, but is there something for those of us who enjoy cold? Like surely the whole world can't be biased that direction. Mm -hmm. I can't be the only one. What I stumbled across was an article called Tis the Season, uh, music playlist preferences for the seasons. So they wanted to know whether our taste in music changes by season. And so given that other behaviours change by season. So Mm -hmm. like, for example, violent crime increases in hot weather. Yeah. Stock market behaviour changes in Mm. hot weather, uh, mood changes with weather, things like that. So they wanted to test it out. Uh, So what they did was that they had um, an online questionnaire with people in the US and in Australia and they asked them to imagine that they were creating a series of playlists. So they were all people who would use stuff like Spotify and create a playlist and were used to that idea. So they had to think of in a random, randomly sort of asked order, autumn, winter, summer, mm-hmm. yeah, spring, and then indicate on a Likert scale about how much each of 24 characteristics described the music that they theoretically would put on this playlist. Yep. Mamas and Papas, California Dreaming <laughs> is definitely the autumn. The autumn. The autumn one. Yep. Yep. Um, so, and all the items spanned a range of things. Like some of it was about the characteristics of the music, like a strong rhythm. Um, other things were like you can dance vigorously to it, happy, natural, sentimental, things mm-hmm, like that. Mm-hmm. Then they did a principal component analysis. It's very fancy. Wow, um, good PCA. Yeah. yeah, and found that there were three dimensions that all of those characteristics could be broken down to. Yeah. So arousing, which was stuff about kind of like active, getting up and moving, mm-hmm. dancing, stuff like that. Serene, so mm-hmm. sort of more melodic, tranquil. Yep. tranquil kind of stuff, and melancholy. Yeah. So more of that moody. Yeah, because moody stuff. so there's like there's a series of uh, CDs or albums, I guess, called Café Del Mar Mm. that were released in the, I want to say the late 90s, uh, early 2000s. And it's about, I think Café Del Mar is like a cafe in Ibiza, Mm. I think. And so the, and they would get DJs to play to the sunset. Interesting. And so these, so there's a series, like you look them up, a series of like really great chill out. CDs, yeah, that fit that, yeah, sort like of really, mood. yeah, like really, like kind of nice, mm. um, and interesting, yeah, interesting stuff. And then there was also another series called Back to Mine, like it's mm-hmm. in Come Back to Mine, mm. and so they get like more cheaper, or they'd get Faithless or whoever, like yeah. sort of like 2000 stuff. Um, and the and the more cheaper ones, really, really good, yeah. Um, and so I know this because like that's what I think I listen to repetitively. Uh, during my honours year mm. because they're really good to study too. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, I have particular songs that are tied or particular albums that are yeah. tied to particular periods of time or stuff that whenever I'm in a particular mood, I always put on the same music Example. or I'll come back to the same thing. So, like, if I'm a bit kind of pensive and I'm driving, mm-hmm. I always put on Oh Wonder which is a band, it's kind of like um, Oh Mercy because I've got O in it, that's why I remember. But it's kind of got a, it's it's a bit acoustic, 
uh, it's got it's quite soft, mm. a little bit of electronic stuff in mm. there, and mm. it kind of can go on in the background. Then every now and then the lyrics come in and kind of sort of think about that for a bit, and then I go back to mm. thinking about what mm. I was thinking about. But often if I'm driving, especially late at night, that's what I put on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, mm. it's, there's quite a lot of albums I think of like a summertime albums. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Because of so in terms of the like dimensions, what they found was kind of expected in that um, the arousing music was preferred in summer. So people wanted stuff that was lively and Mm -hmm. got them moving and stuff. Um, And then uh, following that in spring and then autumn and winter were kind of comparable about when people wanted that kind of music. Um, For Serene, there was a difference between between Australian and US respondents. So Australians had a stronger preference for Serene music in spring and autumn than Americans did. And Americans reported a stronger preference for it in winter than Australians did. Mm. But overall, spring was the highest for serene music yeah. and summer was the lowest. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, because I think spring, like you're, for us, like the, the year's winding down mm. and and you really kind of like looking forward to summer. But yeah, it's like, it's like we're to starting to relax. Like yeah. it's going to be hot and, you know, and that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah interesting. Yeah. And then for melancholy, there was also a difference between um, Australia and US. So Mm -hmm. in winter, Australians endorsed a stronger preference for melancholy music than Americans did. Mm -hmm. And this was the reverse in summer. So more Americans preferred melancholy music in summer than Australians did. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if that's about the severity of the seasons a bit. Yeah, I was wondering about that too. Yeah. Yeah. So whether it's kind of like, you know, I can imagine in the US in winter when it's cold and snowing or whatever perhaps the melancholy stuff just enhances what's going on and kind of goes a little too into it or gives you a lift yeah Yeah, you never know (laughs) and in both countries melancholy music was preferred in autumn and winter than spring and summer interesting so yeah i found it quite interesting and kind of went oh yeah that that probably fits with my musical taste it has been changing lately of kind of going Things will slow down a bit. I don't have as much patience for stuff that's faster. And a bit, sort of, yeah. yeah, I think maybe like I go to like a bit more of a complex, mm. a complex place. Yeah, at this time. So yeah, there you go. So I've got two things. Mm-hmm. Uh, re- recently, I've sort of got to know someone who actually runs a podcast. Mm. They run the uh, says Lauren and Stu, and they run. I know Lauren, and just have known her just last month or two. Yeah, really. And so they run the stupidly small podcast, is what they call, mm-hmm. and so they gave us a shout out on their on nice, their pod. And so, this, so, and I've listened to a few of them. It's it's, it's just chat. It's mm-hmm. like about, it's a half an hour of chat about uh, anything in particular. Not or? really. Yeah. Like just sort of what's going on, just generally in the world. Mm-hmm. I listen to a lot of politics podcasts, American. Yeah. And so. Like it was really refreshing to just like listen to two people natter on about something mm-hmm. about. In just generally, although <laughs> in giving us a plug, they the um the other guy as you like totally like ripped into us about the fact that we've got pod in the title, saying well like he's saying it's a bit redundant, <laughs> and, then, and then and I was like it was like one of those things like once I started thinking about it, it's like I couldn't get not not think yeah you know I think he's right. Oh well, no, we're gonna have to change the name well, of the podcast. <laughs> although although I, I like I listened to an episode this morning uh, or this afternoon and. <laughs> And he opens it with, it's a stupidly small podcast. It's like, <laughs> hmm. <laughs> podcast is also in your title as well. <laughs> so, um, yeah. 
And I mean, like, and I know that we have little, little, you know, co-host t- tension. <laughs> they've they've got a lot more conflict. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We can maybe do a, like a couple session or something like that. Yeah, we can do that. <laughs> recorded or not recorded? <laughs> Depends if the ratings go up. I'm yeah. not sure. Depends what they're comfortable with that's, as well. That's, <laughs> Might that's be it. the main way of communicating. See, see what see what they need to work through. Yeah. Um, so the, the, <laughs> so that's a stupidly small podcast. Uh, um, so have, have a listen. Yeah, have have a listen and check it out. The the other one, the my things we came across. So, I, do you ever read like the correspondence articles in journals? Like, yeah, sometimes if the whatever the heading is or the first kind of line also catches yeah. my attention, but it has to be pretty, yeah, like striking to yeah draw me in. Yeah, so like so basically, like you have a, a journal, uh, someone writes a paper, and then sometimes in the same issue or maybe in a later one, mm. there might you might get a like a, 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 one, a one page response. Yeah, so. Uh, I, I just recently went on a trip overseas for a week. I went to New Caledonia and so I uh, held fast to eating uh, a diet of ba- baguettes and, and pastries every single morning. As is appropriate. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so the, ch- the children wanted to have porridge, but I was like, nah, no. No, no. I'm, I'm having crossings. French speaking, and we have butter and pastry. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> you could put, the only butter I could buy at the service station in New Caledonia was French butter. Oh, heaven. <laughs> I want to move here. Um, so this was a vacation weight gain. Is it really that bad? And the author is Mads uh, Rosenkild from um, the University of Copenhagen. Mm-hmm. So there was a they, this was in physiology and behaviour in 2016, and so there was a prospective study on vacation weight gain in adults by Cooper and Tokar in uh, 2016, published in Physiology and Behaviour. So it was like there was a question of whether weight gain during vacation persists after vacation. Okay. And so they had 22, no, 122 normal weight to obese subjects, people, Mm -hmm. and before and immediately after and again six weeks after a one to three week vacation. Mm -hmm. And they found a small but statistically significant weight gain of 0.3 kilos. Okay. So, and so this response. A slab of French butter. <laughs> well, I mean, that's it. Like, so, um, and, and so the authors are kind of talking about, so weight gain as energy imbalance. Obviously, like this idea of kind of, you know, eating more mm. on holiday. But then that this author was talking about, well, you know, they didn't actually measure the energy that they were taking. And actually, mm. you can. Or their activity. You, you can actually go on holiday, be more active, yeah. and actually put on weight through muscle mass mm. rather than because you're eating a lot. Yeah. Right. So I certainly walk more when I'm on holidays yeah. than what I do yeah. at home. Yeah. So, so there was, a, so, and there's a couple other methodological things that they point out. So I, I thought that was interesting, but <laughs> I, I couldn't help escape, particularly when I read the last bit of it, that maybe the motivations for this was a little different. Which basically they said, you know, a very important finding from the study was that self-evaluated stress and blood pressure decreased after vacation mm-hmm. and that these decreases persisted six weeks after vacation and then goes on to point out that the WHO has labelled high blood pressure as the most important factor for global death mm-hmm. and physical activity is the fourth most important factor and obesity is the fifth. So, <laughs> and, I, and, yeah. I, and so really my thinking was this author has like seen this paper and gone, no, no, it's okay to eat yeah. on vacation. Yeah, yeah. So, it's lowering your blood pressure. That's the important that's thing. That's butter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we need the extra butter 
to lower the blood blood uh, pressure. That's Is that it. the yeah. That's the finding, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's hashtag science. Yeah, <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Should we wrap it up? Yeah. So thank you for listening to us tonight. Uh, we'll be back next time talking about. Narcissistic and antisocial personality yes, disorder. Yes, I think that's so. It should yeah. be very interesting. Yeah, finishing off our Cluster B series. So we'll see you next time. See you later. Bye.